Welcome to Where I Come From, a podcast devoted to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. I'm your host, Dirk Chatwin, and this week's guest is former Nebraska offensive lineman Will Shields, Outland Trophy winner, 12-time Pro Bowler, starter of 231 consecutive NFL games, and inductee to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We talked about growing up in the drug capital of Oklahoma, why he chose Tom Osborne over Barry Switzer, how he learned pass blocking on a basketball court, playing with Joe Montana and Marcus Allen, and his mother's strange connection to Canton. Well, what's interesting is that most people saw me more as a vocal music guy. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. But when he put it down, he kicked it by accident, and it bounced down the field. So I'm chasing the ball <laughs> down the field trying to pick it up. I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it. And he looks at me and goes, do you know how many games you started in a row? This is where I come from. How much pain do you feel now? You know, I'm not bad. I'm not bad at all. Um, basically, I've changed the way I eat. I changed what I've done uh, over the last uh, three months. Uh, three months. This last three months has been a big thing. I've been trying to figure out what's the key to being the best player I can be, person I can be, all the above. Uh, sort of that c- commit to be fit kind of thing. So I sort of took it to heart and said, I got to do it and figure it out. Um, I was battling diabetes and everything else, pre-diabetes, because, you know, my mom died from it. My grandma passed from it. My dad has it. Uh, He just got a kidney about a year and a half ago uh, because of it. And I said, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to figure out a way to get this done. Um, So over the last three months, I've uh, been able to reverse my diabetes I'm taking no meds whatsoever. I took my A1Cs from 10.4 down to 5.7. This is all through diet? All through diet. Not even exercise, huh? All through diet. And it's the coolest thing ever. I feel feel pretty good, you You, know? You live in the... American capital of barbecue. I don't know how you're doing that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I haven't had meat for three months, really. I've had six ounces of chicken or six ounces of fish a week, and that's it. And Have you lost weight? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm about, let's say I started at 309, and as we sit here today, I am 262. You've dropped almost 50 pounds in three months? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. It's the coolest thing ever. And I, I feel pretty good. I mean, you know, being able to say that you've basically went from having X amount of pills to take a day because of it being pre-diabetic to zero at all is amazing within itself. But to know you've almost dropped 50 pounds, about 40-something, 50-something pounds close in three months to help do it, where I always got stuck at 300. 299 baby yeah look at me I'm thin I'm getting there I'm doing this I'm doing that and then found the, the way to eat you know and and that takes extraordinary discipline though yeah it does it does and most people won't give up some of the things that they need to give up um, but I, I sort of figured the, I sort what, of figured for life you what know what was the toughest thing you had to give up you know I used to call myself a chocoholic 
because I love chocolate. I mean, you know, different kinds of chocolate and that kind of stuff. And that and that's something I think is the hardest thing for me to give up. Sweets. It's the sweets. And that was one of the keys to everything is imagining how much sweets that you ate in a day when you're not even thinking about it. Whether it's a hamburger bun that turns into sweets or uh, different things or pasta that turns into sweets. Uh, you know, there's so many different things now that you don't do and you haven't done that now it's sort of, you see how good it is, you feel how good it is, and you're going, this is crazy. Because, you feel how good your body is? You yeah, just... because you're to that point where you've always told yourself, well, I got to have meat, I got to have protein, I got to have that, I got to have this. But you're not educating yourself, and I have a fitness center. And so I sit here and I'm going through and I'm going, okay, what do I do in my fitness center to help everyone out? I said, I want everything I teach somebody, I have to do it myself. So I've tried the paleo. I tried the ketones. I tried all this other stuff. I tried all these different things. Um, and I go, let me try this and see what happens. And so I went to the dietitian after I started this new eating regimen like a weekend. I had already lost like five pounds that first week. And then I was listening to nutritionists that were telling me, oh, well, you need this, you need that, you need more protein, you need this, you need this. And I go, well, what if you use natural protein? What do you mean? I was like, I'm not talking about mixes and stuff like that. What if you just use what was created for you as protein? Let's say beans and chickpeas and things of that nature. Well, I'm not really sure if that's going to supplement this, that, and the other. You know, you usually have a good steak here and there. You usually have this, you have that. And I said, well, I got this other thing I'm trying to figure out. They were saying that. They were saying and that. And you were basically saying, I can do better than that. Yes. I'm saying, I got to find out something better than that. And so... You know, start doing some research, found some doctors that were sort of down the same way, science-wise and everything else, and watched, you know, two or three of the different uh, documentaries on different stuff about eating and what happens to your body and things like that. Tried to educate myself outside of the box and inside of the box, because, look, I'm not saying everybody's right, wrong, or indifferent. I just had to figure out what worked for me. And so then I just start kept eating the way I was because the weight started to fall off. And it just kept falling and falling and falling and falling. How low can you go? I don't know. That's the thing that's scary about it. I think about this. I say, well, my son plays professional basketball, and he is... He's 170 pounds soaking wet. He's 230. <laughs> he's about 220, 230 he's on a good though. day. On yeah. a good day. But he's stretched over a little frame. Right. Um, so I'm sitting here going, there. as I think about it, if it's like, eight months down the road and I could walk into a room and tell him that he's heavier than me. Wow. That would freak him out. But it would be the coolest thing ever. And I'm not saying I'm trying to drop. I still eat the way I eat. I still eat, you know. So is there something that you're calling your diet? Is there something? Um, I eat more vegetables and raw and cooked and that kind of stuff. There's a bigger percentage of that that I eat. I do beans and berries and... Uh, yeah, beans, berries, and I do a little fruit, but I can only do two or three pieces of fruit a day. I can't do bananas anymore, that kind of stuff. Uh, bananas has to, my body doesn't absorb it right, sugar-wise, so it spikes my sugar, and you have to learn those things. And, you know, those and peaches and that kind of stuff spikes your sugar. So you have to figure out which ones you eat, which ones you don't. And then I do nuts, you know, nuts and seeds. That kind of stuff. This was motivated by a diagnosis of pre-diabetes? Yes, I got pissed. I was pissed because I, you know, I dieted for a while. I did this certain um, 
eating clean diet and my sugars were pretty good at that point. And then I went to paleo thinking that, you know, went to different, all these different, you know, different parts of it. And, you know, I did Atkins. I did eat, you know, was it eat right for your blood type, which are all great books and things like that. But I can't knock them because they, you know, they just didn't work for me. But I had to go and find out what worked for me. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And so it's been amazing how it's worked. Okay, time out for creative editing. Oh, I Will had, Shields well, talks about his fascinating road to wellness, including his take on years. CTE, so for another for seven minutes. You'll down, find the rest of that know, conversation at the end of this podcast. We are sitting in your office in, uh, on 91st and Flint in Overland Park, and you've been here for 10 years, and this is where you train the next generation athletes, right? Yeah, that's what we try to do here. We try to get the next generation ready, regardless if it's... We go at grandma's the athletes, so we basically start with babies. So we do swim programs and everything else. It's uh, you know, it's basically for anybody that wants to get get fit. So we our, our thing is com- commit to be fit uh, is our mantra. So anybody that wants to be fit, that's who we train. That's who we work with. So it's not just like high school kids wanting to get college scholarships. No, uh-uh. Actually, the majority of our uh, clientele are actually moms and dads and people that just use the gym on a regular basis. Uh, I have more like basketball members and things of that nature than I do uh, probably in my sports performance program. How hands-on are you? I'm here every day. Uh, pretty much if I'm in town, I come in, I'm here every day. Um, I, I'm a hybrid right now. I'm the CEO slash general manager slash that guy that shows up and gets in people's way. Uh, all the above. Um, we've had a couple of different general managers come in and out. We're, of course, always looking for the next one to come in and try to help us run the facility. Uh, but so far, I've been able to sort of sit down and uh, help out as I can. Is it hard to coach this generation of kid? You know, I don't know if it's hard to coach this just this generation of kid. I think it's hard to get into the mind of this generation of kid. Uh, I think it's a different way that you have to go about it. Um, you have to follow them on Twitter. You have to Facebook. You have to do whatever they're doing to actually understand where they're from. But when you come in here, you sort of change the mantra anyway. When they walk in the door, they have a different mindset anyway. If they come in here and they want to train, they're a kid that's more sports-oriented. They're, they're wanting to get better in something, whether it's just losing weight or anything of that nature. That's what they're working for. Whereas um, when you're looking to coach, in which you know I do coach teams and everything else, they sign up for those teams. Or sometimes you see those guys that mom has made them do it or dad has made them do it. And those are the kids that you like, oh, it's really tough for him or her because we know that they are going to go in a different route down the road, but they're forced into this situation. Uh, so it's not really it's not really a hard mindset. It's just learning how each kid is different and you have to coach them differently. Whereas back in the day when I was going to school, it was more or less we coach them all the same. Everybody gets ready the same. And those kids that fall off, fall off. You know, nowadays it's uh, let's find out what what each kid are making made of. You know, each individual kid is made of, and then group them that way, and then coach them all in those different ways that gets the best out of them. It's a softer method, right? It's not necessarily a softer. It's just understanding what their mental makeup is, and and understanding that it can change over a course of so many years. That kid that started day one that's really quiet and 
what you consider shy and not sure four or five years down the road, he or she might be that person that's yelling and telling people what to do and bossing them around and everything else. It just depends on how you get them from that one place to another. So you're doing personal instruction. Yes. And you're doing coaching teams too? Yes. Yeah. Which do you enjoy more? Um, a little of both. I, I like the combination of it um, because I can go in and decipher some different things out of different kids individually. But also, on the other hand, I can take a team and try to see what's best. So when we coach football as a group, I'm the defensive coordinator. Really? Yeah. And, let, and yet, you know, I played offense all through college and pros. Is the head coach worried that you're not qualified to be a you know, call no, plays? No, uh-uh. <laughs> no, he's not worried about it at all. Uh, but all the way up through high school and through, you know, right before I got to college, I played both sides. So I played offense and defense. So uh, you get pigeonholed after a certain point of, well, you played certain things, so you only know that certain thing. And you're going, well, I had to learn what they would do that I didn't like, and then I can put it in and, and throw it back into other people's face and see if they can figure it out. Uh, you're from a military family. Yeah. Your dad was in the Army in, at Fort Sill. Uh, yeah. You lived, grew up in Lawton, Oklahoma. Well, before that, I started here in Kansas. I was born in Fort Riley. Oh, really? Yeah, I was born right here in Fort Riley, Kansas, um, right out, you know, right outside the Ar Army base up in uh, Junction City. Huh. And then was here for about two years. Then we moved to, I think it was Kala or California for like a six-month stint, and then to Texas for a six-month stint, and then got put back, or finally got de deployed, or sent to Lawton. Hmm. And so then I basically started from there. You had two older siblings. Yeah. An older brother and an older sister. Yes. Uh, discipline and structure was a pretty important part of your life growing up, right? It was good. Uh, yeah, dad was military, so it was basically by the book. It was to that point of uh, it was not a lot of no, it was no nonsense about a lot of things, uh, right nor wrong, you know. But, you know, dad did the best he could with us. And I know that sometimes as kids go, we get to that point where we're like, man, this is over the top. This is this. This is that. But, like what? Well, you know, just, you know, getting in trouble for certain things you didn't, you didn't do or certain things you don't think you should get in trouble for. Um, but looking back at it, you know, he kept us out of trouble. It kept us understanding the rights and wrongs of life. You know, him and my mom did an excellent job with us keeping us, you know, safe and, and actually... You know, giving us a, a moral ground to stand on. What were the things? Are there things that stick with you? You know, lessons that you, from way back. Well, that, that one of the one of the best lessons I ever had was actually from my grandmother. Um, we were staying in Texas. We were going to stay with her for the summer, and I had this uh, Westwood Tiger shirt. It's my favorite shirt that I wore for my little high school or little uh, elementary first in, baseball team. And in right? uh, it's my little elementary shirt. Uh, when I was in Oklahoma, we were visiting my grandma for the summer. So I had this stick, and she lived at, she had her own little farm and everything else, so I had this stick, and I'm pushing it in front of me, just pushing, just pushing, just pushing. And my grandma looks at me and goes, you better be careful with that stick, because you're gonna end up getting stuck and it's gonna stab you. And I'm going, oh, grandma, I know what I'm talking about, I know what I'm doing, no big deal. Um, and my grandma used to call me the 44-year-old uh, midget, that I was older beyond my age, but then sometimes I'd act like a kid. But I was more or less that kid that always seemed a little older than I was. So I'm walking behind this stick and I'm pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, digging into the ground. It gets stuck, stabs me in the belly, 
cuts my shirt open, cuts my belly open, you know. Really? That, yeah, you know. And all I could do was just look at her. I couldn't say anything. I couldn't go to a point of going, how did you know this was going to happen? And I didn't want to admit that it happened. Um, you certainly didn't want to cry to her. Exactly, you know, because she'd be looking like, oh, I told you so, and now it happened, and now you're up here crying. But, you know, that's one of those things that, you know, and then you learn, hey, you got to listen. You got to learn. You got to watch. You got to observe. They've already done it and seen it and everything else. Uh, it gave you that new respect for your grandmother at that point of uh, teaching you a lesson without teaching you a lesson in a sense. And so, you know, that's one of those things that you sort of, you know, so you start take, taking uh, advantage of those that are around you and start watching little things and learning from them the best you can. Hmm. Uh, your dad was actually, he had a few deployments. He spent a few years in Germany yeah. while you were in Lawton. Yeah. Do you... That had to be hard as a kid, not having your dad around. You know, my dad was one of those guys that we knew regardless. We knew that planes would fly. So if dad needed to come home and get us right, he would come home to get us right. Really? So we still had the fear factor regardless of him being in the house or away from the house. Uh, you know, it was that, hey, wait till your dad get home or let me call your father. It was the same difference. Lawton is a military town but also in the 80s it was it was a tough place i mean there were there were sections of lawton that you didn't necessarily you know want to spend much time in and there were some negative influences in the community how, how were you aware of that because you know i think there was somebody called it the drug capital of, of oklahoma at one point yeah we gave it a hard yeah we gave coach switzer a hard time for making that statement he recanted that said sorry for doing that and that kind of thing uh, you know we're on i-35 I mean, that is a hub of where everybody brings drugs through, that kind of stuff. It doesn't necessarily mean that Lawton is the drug hub of Kansas or of, of Oklahoma, but it's just the simple fact that he made the statement. So we, we sort of, you know, make it make it seem a little tougher than it is. You know, we go to that point, oh, yeah, well, we're tougher than that because, you know, you know, Coach Switzer said we're the drug capital of Oklahoma, whereas... Were you aware of that stuff going on around you? There was always stuff like that going on, and basically, you know, you can't put your head in the sand, but you try to, you do other things, that, you know, to where you don't have to worry about that. I mean, we lived in a neighborhood that was, that was great. There weren't any of those problems. Um, we basically, we focused on, you know, the schoolwork and the and the uh, the athletic piece of it. I mean, we had our street games that we played against each other and things of that nature. And your BMX bike races, right? Oh man, not yeah. We had a little bit of everything. I mean, back then it was a lot of fun, and and that's what I love about when I do get to go home, is getting the opportunity to watch kids still riding their bikes across town. Uh, you know, kids that are not you know adults. They're kids, you know, they're a group of kids going from one place to another or riding their bikes over to go to the basketball courts that are outside to play, uh, you know, and, and that is one of the coolest things to see is that, you know, those things still happen. You had a paper route. I want to applaud you for having a newspaper route that you did before school and after school, the Lawton Constitution. Yeah, man. 5 a.m., right? Well, that that was inherited from my brothers and sisters. <laughs> I mean, my brother and sister both. I think my brother had the route first. He had one route, and then my sister got a route. Uh, and then when they both left, I think me and my mom sort of kept it going for a while, as long as we could, and then we finally gave them up. Uh, but, you know, it gave you that different discipline. Um, you had your own business. 
you had to go from door to door to collect. You know, it's not it's not like the like the fitness business is now. You can hey, you're gonna give me your credit card, and every month we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. It wasn't that way. I mean, it, you know, it was to that point to where when you wanted to go skating on the weekend or something like that, you remember that guy you can only catch on Friday nights at home who owes you uh, money that owes you money, and you have to knock on the door, and you know you have to chase off dogs and things of that nature. Dogs are chasing you to get your money. Uh, but you know, it, it taught you a lot of resiliency. It taught you how to, you know, keep your life in order in a sense, because you have to figure out when people are going to be around to sort of collect that money because you have a product that you're serving. So, it, you know, it was one of those things early in life to learn between that and mowing grass. We had our grass business where we would ride around with our lawnmowers hanging off the back of our bikes and, uh, hey man, 25 bucks, I'll cut your front grass. You know, we find that right. guy, he's like, hey, yeah, come on, do it. We'll be knocking out that thing. It's like all the way up to your knees and things of that nature. But, you know, you, you do a little bit of anything odd jobs wise to try to make a little extra cash here and there. You, uh, you once said that uh, on the field, you were your father's son. Off the field, you were your mother's son. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you mean by that? Uh, I have my two mentalities, I guess, in a sense. Um, my dad has a different, he has a different demeanor. It's more uh, boisterous. It's more get after it. It's more uh, aggressive. And so that's when I was more like my dad. You know, I could put it on and turn it on. And then off the field, I could be like my mom. My mom's more reserved and uh, the more uh, laid back as a person. And so I had those two mentalities and was, was able to turn it on and turn it off. Um, your your older brother kind of taught you football, right? Yeah, yeah. And your older sister taught you music. Yes. Descri yes. Describe the music interest. How did that develop? Um, well, we used to uh, when we were at home, you know, just the kids or what have you. We used to put on shows and we used to pretend we were famous music artists. You really? know, uh, the Jackson Fives, the Silvers, um, different groups like that, and. Um, we would sing their songs and dance to them and things of that nature. And that's where we started with our singing stuff. You know, we'd always pretend like we were such and such or we found a good song we like. And, you know, me and my sister, she would take the girl part. I would take the guy part and we'd sing it and everything else. And then in seventh grade, I was looking for elective. I was like, what kind of elective can I take that'll be fun, that I'll enjoy, that I'll gravitate to? And basically at that point, we had music from kindergarten through sixth grade. And my sister was already doing vocal music, and she goes, do vocal music, you'll love it. It's what we do at home anyway. Um, you can do it there and have a good time at it and then see what happens. So went out for vocal music and ended up staying in it from seventh grade till I graduated. So and you loved it. Loved every minute of it. Uh, basically, show choir, jazz choir, ensembles. I would take a solo to state every year. Really? Uh, for competition. Do you remember any of your solos? Oh, yeah, especially the... Um, um, the first one that actually I took the state was Swing Low Sweet Chariot. And, uh, you remember the lyrics? Oh, yeah. How's and it the go? Thing, and the thing about it was is that I ended up uh, singing the first verse twice and messed up on it. Um, but they liked my high note enough to where they still... Uh, I think they gave me a one or a two on it, which is, you know, the highest of it is. I was pretty close to one of the two, but for my first solo. How's it go? Uh, it's a spiritual, you know, it's just easy. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. You know, so you can, you know, and it's just one of those songs. And, you you know, you've heard it in the choir, you've heard it at church and that kind of stuff, but... You were a tenor, right? Yeah, I'm a tenor, uh, but I can sing baritone. 
Um, I can squeeze out some bass notes, uh, but I am a second tenor from that point. So I have a pretty good range. Uh, I can go from bass, baritone, and tenor. Um, not too much of first tenor stuff. Voice ain't that high yet. Uh, yet? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As they say. You when, still work on it? They say when you get older, it's time to go back to the lab and work on it. So that'll be something I'll start on next is doing stuff like that. Your, your choir teacher was one of your biggest influences. Yeah, she's she's an awesome lady. And thing of it is, I had uh, one guy. He had a long name when we were in in school. Uh, Miss Davis was the first that started it. She was in in elementary, and then Miss Gagliardi, which we call her Miss G, was in high school, and she was the one that actually, uh, you know, became the closest to the family and everything else. Um, she sort of was one of the people that sort of helped me sort of look at how teachers can help other people. What do you mean? Um, basically, you know, she was like, um, well, she's my kid's godmother in a sense. And so she was sort of the same for everyone else in the school that came through her program. Uh, there was not a kid that came through her program that she was not willing to help, willing to step out of her way to do something extra to help them feel comfortable, to help them understand little things about life and I mean, she probably had more kids stay at her house uh, that had problems at home or were kicked out of the house and things like that than you could shake a stick at. It's important to note Will Shields was the 2003 NFL Man of the Year in large part because of his community service, especially to neglected and abused women and children. She sort of helped start that pathway of, of helping me think about what does other people need? What do other people, you know, how can you help? when you when you have an opportunity to do such so between her and then I had a football coach that was the same way um, basically coach Madden was that guy that was my offensive line coach and I ended up getting closer to him than all my other coaches and basically watching him and how he raised his twin daughters and how he treated the line and how he did things and how the things he taught us um, and he still has the same demeanor today than he had then. So, like, every once in a while, he'll call me out of the blue, and we'll be like, hey, what's up, coach? And he'll be like, hey, well, uh, we're running against this team that has this, this, and this. So we bounce off ideas back and forth about game really? film and that kind of stuff. So he was like our O-line coach at that point, became the head coach, and then left from there and then became an O-line coach again and that kind of stuff. And we still talk football. We still have camps. Everywhere he goes, we end up having a camp there at least every other year huh. uh, to go and see what his kids are doing. And he sits here and he, we just sit and talk football for like four or five days in a row. Um, you know, my daughter played uh, college basketball. She played at Drury. And she was playing in a game. I'm trying to think of this. It's in Oklahoma, but it's way up north. Um and I told Coach, hey, yeah, Sneaker's coming down. She's playing up north, you know, and I gave him where it was. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's about five, five and a half hours away. Not only does he show up, but his wife shows up. Both girls show up with their boyfriends show up. Really? You know, all Family road Yeah, and that's where it is. I mean, anytime they're coming, uh, they're bringing the whole family with them. And that's one of the coolest things about it is that just watching the people in my hometown and how they treat other people and how um, – you know, it's a true community. They do things for each other and uh, you know, to the point. And so that's that, what learning. I think some of that, and I'm being a little hypocritical here, uh, but, but some of that I think has been lost because, you know, people are so, maybe it's out of safety or just comfort or whatever, but there's, 
you know, people draw more rigid lines around their family than I think they used to. And they're, they're less willing to sort of break out and either be part of a community or to bring people in. Uh, well, I think that comes from uh, being transient. Uh, when you have to move from one place to another all the time, okay. it's hard for you to embrace somebody new. Um, but, you know, if you grew up in, in that era, in that group, they all went to elementary school together. They played games against each other. They went to high school together. They knew each other forever. They knew each other forever. So they knew, they know what they're dealing with when they're dealing with each other because hmm. they've been there with them for a long time. So good, bad, or indifferent, they know what kind of person it is. They know they've been there uh, you know, there's it's just the coolest thing to watch because you'll go home and you go, oh well, you know, Miss Linda, she's gonna cook some lasagna, right? But you don't know who's all gonna eat the lasagna before you get there. I mean, it could be another coach, it could be the next door neighbor, it could be, you know, because you just you mean people are just they just being with each other. Yeah, they're yeah. just being with each other. They're around and that kind of stuff. You go, hey, didn't you say you had some pork chops in here? Oh well, coach such and such came over yesterday and he ate the pork chops. Really? <laughs> yeah, you know that kind of thing. And and that's that's the coolest thing that I get to watch. And then. When I come here, it's different because, you know, people are guarded and I have to be guarded because of, you know, what others are looking at, what they want to do and that kind of stuff. But community wise, you can still help out as much as you can and do the best job you can. And that's one thing we love about having the Will to Succeed Foundation. Yeah, because you've got this foundation that touches the community in all sorts of different ways. And and it sounds like it's sort of the seed was planted back watching people kind of open their doors right oh yeah most definitely oh yeah easily um you know and that also gives you that that feeling of hey you know it could be tough it's tough at your house but it's not as tough as it could be at your house Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying yeah and everybody thinks oh well this is the worst thing ever and say what's the worst thing ever oh my dad took my car away and i'm going yeah that's not too bad I mean, mm. the difference is, is if somebody took your car away, your phone away, and kicked you out of the house, and you have nowhere to go. Right. That is a bad day. You were part of a, a group of athletes at Lawton High School that was really impressive. I think six of them went on to be professional athletes in some way, or... Yeah, there's compete. more There's more than that within that three-year span. Okay. But yeah, yeah, but, we had a lot of guys that went on to be pro athletes. But the two most notable football players, Dual Brewer... Mm-hmm. Uh, who went to OU? Yeah, and James Trapp, who went to Clemson. Yeah, and he was actually an alternate in the '92 Olympics yes. as a sprinter. Yeah, and then played with the Ravens on their Super Bowl team in 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're with these guys. Uh, when did you realize, hey, I'm I'm pretty good at football, uh, and I might have a future in this thing? Well, what's interesting is that most people saw me more as a vocal music guy, really, than a football player. Because we in had high school? Oh yeah. We had so many great athletes on our team. I mean, if you have the number two rusher in the nation and you have that was Duel? Duel, yeah. Duel. Duel, okay. yeah. Well, you know, Duel could I mean, he was a freak of nature what he could do. And then you had James Trapp, which, you know, was one of the fastest guys in the country. At that point we just thought he was a fast guy in our neighborhood. Um, <laughs> which he raced cross uh so Jason Rouser, which was also in the 92 Olympics, they used to race every week. And we used to watch them run the 200 and 400 against each other. And we're sitting here looking like, yeah, these two guys are pretty fast, you know, but we don't know how fast they are compared to the guys in Texas or compared to the guys here and there. 
and then watching both get gold medals is one of those things that you're going, I guess they were really fast. Gold medals they, where? Uh, Barcelona. Yeah, so they both have gold medals from Barcelona. And you're sitting here going, yeah, I guess we were watching some of the best in the world when we're sitting in our stands just battling back and forth cross-town rivalries. One of the smartest things that Nebraska ever did was inviting your high school coach up to camp before your junior year of high school. So this would have been like 1987 or something that was like eight, that. Yeah, 80, uh, yeah, 87. Summer of yeah, 87. Yeah, summer of 87. And the thing is, is that what they did mess up, though, is that they didn't bring the guys that were going to be seniors to that camp. <laughs> they missed some guys. Um, you know, they missed some real good guys that could have helped them out even before our class. But our coaches knew we had a special junior class coming in, but they didn't really understand that you should have taken everybody because we had four or five. I mean, but Kelly, you were changing the offense. Yeah, we were going so to. So that's why we, you that's were changing why they, Nebraska's yeah, offense. Yeah, but we had seniors run that offense too. So we would have been okay. the juniors, but we put their offense in verbatim. Um, at that point, you know, nobody knew who we were. And so there was 14 of us that show up at this camp and we're just raising Kane. I mean, we are raising Kane in every position. Um, and I think that day they were looking at like six of us. So that was your first taste in Nebraska. Yeah. And yeah. You, and you got a crash course. The next two years of high school, you sort of got a crash course in their offense. Oh, well, once they put our offense in, we had it. I mean, we had it down. We ran a college offense in high school verbatim, um, which was funny because it actually helped me out down the road with my decision of where I was going to go, what I was going to do. If I would have played one place, I would have played DN. If I would have played another place, I would have been guard, you know, back and forth. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, well, you know, Nebraska has a great – at this point they had the best – uh, academic center mm -hmm. and to me that was huge I needed it you know and that's what I was looking at and so the big academic center was one of those pieces that I knew I needed from that point and uh, and that's what really sort of swayed the decision on top of already you know I've already know the offense I know the coaching staff um, I knew what I was getting into and some of the other coaching staffs that I sort of interviewed and talked to really didn't seem as interested in me as they did mm. other people or other things that they were going to do. And and that's that's just for me to, you know, have to deal with. Okay, the elephant in the room here is that nobody from Oklahoma, a blue, no blue chip recruit from Oklahoma went to Nebraska. Yeah. I mean, this was like unheard of. Yeah. Uh, this is the fall of 88, winter of 89 when you're making your decision. Yeah. Oklahoma's getting ready to get hit with probation and sanctions and yes. Charles Thompson's going to land on the cover of Sports Illustrated for selling cocaine to an undercover FBI agent. Yes. Uh, this is kind of the context of this. Yeah. What was the reaction like in Lawton when Will Shields chooses to go to Nebraska? Well, it, it was sort of in between because you had to realize that, you know, Charles was about getting, Charles got in trouble. There was different things and he's from our high school also. Yeah. So, you know, there was that thinking about it, but they got Dwell. You know, he was the guy that they basically said, hey, he's going to be a guy that's going to make our offense go. Um, and not saying that I was an afterthought, um, but I just didn't want to go to the point of um, go to a flash and dash school at that point. I mean, and I'm just being honest. There was guys there that was telling me, oh, we do this, we can do that, we can do this. You're and, talking about off the field stuff. Yeah, and I just needed structure. I like the structure of it. That home life is what I'm used to. Um, you liked I, you liked boring Tom Osborne. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked to, to was you know you knew you weren't going to get in too much trouble and 
Yeah, I mean, you're going to hear, gosh darn it, and that's it. And that's what I was sort of gravitating to at that point. That's did what that, I needed. Did you have any experiences with Barry Switzer? And was it hard to tell him no? Uh, no, because really I didn't have to tell anybody no because I hadn't committed to anyone. So basically until signing day comes, nobody knows where you're going. Was it a drama on signing day? And so signing day, they had, you know, they were traveling around to their first guys to make sure they had certain guys signed. Yeah, because coaches could fly all over the place. Yeah, so they, so they were traveling to make sure they got their key guys and that kind of stuff. And then uh, that morning I signed and I had my Wee Bad Nebraska shirt on. And you got what? It says Wee Bad Nebraska, and it was an old school shirt. And so they were saying, where are you going? And I opened my shirt and did Wee Bad Nebraska, took a picture and signed it. If I'm going to be an offensive lineman, might as well go to a school that has produced a few offensive linemen that were pretty good. Okay, let's go back to the original question, though. What was the reaction in Lot? It wasn't bad. Really? It wasn't bad at all because Duell, it went to OU, uh, and that was the guy that everybody wanted to be there. You know what I'm saying? So... It wasn't bad. It wasn't a lot of backlash. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Um, I explained to people from the beginning. My family's from Texas. I didn't watch college football. So I wasn't stuck in that drama of this team versus that team, the historical piece versus that. You were not watching Nebraska, Oklahoma in the 80s? No. I was playing ball. I was throwing newspapers. I was, hey, Sunday was our day to watch football. Saturday, I didn't really knew existed <laughs> until they start recruiting you. You know, at that point, you know, we had just what we once stayed, or uh, we were getting ready, we were playing well, we are doing this, we are doing that, and then the next thing you know, the coaches come in, hey, you got a box full of these letters we've been holding for you till after this was done, and then you're going, oh, so there seems interested in me. Did your ignorance help you in any way? Oh, of course. How? It did. Because then I, had, I didn't have to worry about anything. Um, you know, I wasn't worried about, oh, well, which school's looking at me today or anybody flying here. Our assumption was is that, they were there to watch Duell, and our job was to make Duell look good. Isn't that interesting? I don't think I don't think a kid could be that ignorant today with all the you can't with all the attention. you can't because there is so many status. There is you know the rivals of the world. Yeah. There's you know social media. It's social stuff. media. I mean, think about it. even here at our facility, we know what kids are ranked or not ranked, or some kids will go to five different camps just so they could be ranked. Right. Um, you know, it, it's a different world. It's a different opportunity. Um, you know, the great thing about, you know, the electrical world is that it can be good or detrimental, all depending on what you do with it. Yeah, it's true. And that is the biggest caveat, where for us, we had to wait till, you know, an article came out and said, hey, these kids could play Division One football. And at that point, none of us had thought about that. We were thinking about, hey, what are we doing tomorrow? Hmm. What's going to happen next week? It wasn't about the whole six months or eight months down the road, it was like, okay, well, what, what are we going to do next week? How are we going to get through that? The world seemed smaller back then, didn't it? It was awesome. It was the greatest thing ever because you didn't have to worry about everything else outside of your city, state, or whatever because you didn't sit up at 1030 at night watching news. You didn't sit up, you know, you didn't, but right now, everything comes to your phone instantaneously. Yeah. You're, you have instant access to everything. You don't have to go to the library to pick up a book. You don't have to do all the other things that we had to do. And that was sort of a nice, simpler time. Hmm. Um, but you sort of go with the punches, understand how it works, and, you know, technology's here and it's here to stay, so you might as well learn how to utilize it to the best of your ability. Hmm. You go to Lincoln. What was that culture like, and, and how, did how did tradition sort of shape your experience? You know, they already had their tradition set. Hmm. You know, um, they had the group they called the Pipeline. Um, 
you didn't know what your playing time was going to be. When I came in, there was five seniors. But I knew after that year I would get a chance to play. And you really didn't know what that looked like. But they had loaded up so well, and they had such a great program going at that point. They had the freshman team, and they had everything else that they could do. Um, but it was to the point to where I played, I think, two freshman games. And I basically had to go to coach and tell him I can't play freshman football. Why? Um, it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair for me to be on the field with the other freshmen. Wait um, a second. This is a, this is sort of a moment that um, I've never heard of this moment. What happened? Yeah. So we. Uh, so I didn't travel to Colorado, and we played a. Uh, okay. So this is fall of '89. Yeah, fall of '89. You're 89. a true freshman. I'm a true freshman. True freshman never play at Nebraska. No. I mean that's sort of yeah, an unwritten rule yeah, that you're going so, to redshirt. Yeah, you usually redshirt or what have you. But I played as a freshman and. I was getting in like second half and playing like the whole second half of the game and that kind of stuff. And then coach says, Hey, we got five seniors. I got a guy that is traveling. That's going to call You know, he's from Colorado. He's going to play. And I was like, that's fine coach. You know, I know I'm a freshman. That's part of it. He was like, but you can play freshman football. So we played a team in freshman football. And so it's like the air force JV or something. I like don't that. know who it was, but it was to that point to where I told coach, I said, coach, I understand you get reps, you get this, you get that. And I said, but it's not fair. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, it was, I mean, it was blatantly not fair because at that point I could, I mean, I could handle my own with the black shirts at that point as a freshman. And at that, you know, if I can do that, then, going to play on a freshman game was not, it wasn't fun. So even coach noticed it on film and he was like, yeah, we can't do that. Anymore. That was one of the last years of the freshman team. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you know, your athleticism, they noticed your athleticism right away. I mean that you, I think you stood out for that and you also stood out because you knew the offense. Yeah. Whereas yeah. everybody else that was coming in as a freshman took a year or two to learn it. Yeah. You already knew it. I had an advantage. Yeah. And, and I took advantage of it as best as I could. Uh, we put the we put the offense in verbatim, which is a it's, it's not a difficult offense, but it's a lot of nomenclature, a lot of understanding where little nuances are and everything else. And our coaches taught us, you know, they gave us the playbook and we went through the playbook and we basically – Pulled it out. I mean, like, basically on a basic 44 dive, you know, it's right seam on, left seam, help center. That's your rules. So in your mind, you're going through all of that. Okay, is there a guy on my right seam? Is there a guy on the left seam? Is there a guy on? If not, I help the center. If not, I help the center go to the linebacker. So those, that's all you have to go through in your mind while you're still listening to Cadence. Mm. And then you have to dissect it, go, and then be able to do it. I'd already been doing it for two years because I came to camp learned some of it there. Then our coaches brought it in and implemented it. Then we ran it for two years. So by the time they got there, I already knew the techniques, what they called it and everything else. So some of the freshmen, they were looking around like, where did this freak of nature come from that picks up all this offense and everything <laughs> else? And I didn't have the heart to tell everybody, dude, I've been in the offense for two years and already knew a lot of the calls and everything else moving forward. So, you know, we were in the back. He goes, hey, what's that call back here? And you go, I look up. That's a four-call coach. Everybody's looking around like, I couldn't even remember yesterday's plays. More or less remember what that call was or that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I had a good advantage. And basically, I wanted to make sure I did the best with it. Hmm. Um, 
You weren't quite ready physically, though. As as Ron Brown told me once, uh, you requested to lift at night, lift weights at night, because you weren't quite comfortable lifting with everybody else. Is that well, true? Well, I didn't lift at night, but I didn't lift with the other guys. And I think more of it was is that I, I wasn't. A, I'm not a weight room junkie. Hmm. Never have been. My my strength was in my legs, and I use my legs for everything, for balance, to control people, and everything else. And I think at that time, in that era, everything was about getting bulk, getting strength, getting that kind of power, where I generate all my powers with my legs. And so using Coach Epley's you know, chart as far as how strong you are and what you do, there's no way I was going to bench 400, 500 pounds. Um, I wasn't built for it. Um, my, I got 37-inch arms, uh, uh, length in arms. You, not too many people can do 400 pounds. 37 inches, wow. Yeah. So, you know, I, my arms are as long as a person that's 6'6", six, six, even though I'm six two and a half. So that's a long way to push, you know, for that point. So I can build them up as much as I want to, but for me to do 400, 500 pounds, that's not, that's not my cup of tea. Hmm. Now, if you tell me to block somebody, I can do that all day. So that was my premise of how we did things. So I did more... Uh, I worked out in the mornings early, um, did some stuff with Coach Bailey. He helped me get as strong as I could get. Um, but I did a lot of hip sled stuff. So I didn't do a lot of straight on squatting, but hip sled was my baby. I mean, I can easily do over a thousand pounds hip sled. Really? Yeah, that was it. I mean, my legs, I just wanted to get them as strong as I could, as fast as I could. And that's where my strength was. It was all in, in my legs and my butt. You're, uh, I talked to Willie Rofe a couple of years ago when you went into the Hall of Fame, and he said that you wouldn't know it, but Will had a chip on his shoulder. Uh, you know, NFL Man of the Year and soft-spoken and humble and all these things. You wouldn't necessarily think it, but he had a chip. Where did the chip come from, and how did it, how did it make you better? Well, I, I took the premise of, at one point in college, I was thinking, man... I'm, I'm terrible at this game. Maybe I should give it up. Uh, had a bad game. Um, hyped up a guy for the whole year. What and, game? Uh, we played Washington. And they had... Steve Entman. Steve Entman running all over the place. And we're sitting here thinking, man, Will, how are you going to block this guy? Will, how are you going to do this? They started that during the offseason. And I'm sitting here going, what are you talking about? I mean, this guy can do everything. He's ultimate. He can run. He can do this. He can do that. So then we get in the game, have some early hiccups, mistakes, everything else. And I'm sitting here at halftime. And I go, you know what? I'm just going to attack this guy. Just do what I do. Not worry about where he's going to be. Just do what I do. And so then two or three plays into it, get after him a little bit. Four or five plays get into it after him. Then we go down by 21. And after the first two or three drives, I was like, this is it. I'm on him. It's time to go. But we had got so far behind, couldn't catch up at that point. So then we ended up losing the game, of course, and I'm sitting here, and I'm at that time talking to my girlfriend, which is now my wife, and I'm going, yeah, this sucks. I was like, I, I could have actually took it to this guy, and yet I took myself out of the game because I let other people psych me out. It sort of changed the mindset of I, I can't listen to other people outside of my own realm and basically do what I do. And then figure it out from that point. Because I have to figure it out myself. Because you can tell me everything about this guy is the best thing since sliced bread. 
till he shows it to me. He's got to earn it. Characterize the teaching of Milt Tenniper. You know, Milt Tenniper is awesome. I mean, you know, he has a grit way about him. Um, he wants dominance across the board. Um, he wants to be, he wants you to go out and finish everything from top to bottom. And it's not necessarily finish everything from top to bottom so he can placate or show you. It's more or less, now I can get my other guys in and get more reps in. <laughs> so now I can get the next group in and get more reps in because now I'm building for the future. Right. So it wasn't like, okay, I want to get up on these guys by 21 points just to show them what we can do. No, I need to get up by 21 points. So then in the second half, we come out, our firsts are in for one. Now our twos are getting reps. Then the third quarter, late third quarter, our threes are getting reps. And then if we have guys that are up that are dressed, then our fours are getting reps. It was all about building for the next year, building for the future, building for whatever. And, um, and, and, you know, he goes, hey, the more reps I give those younger guys, the better they become. So now I have a guy that's a four-year, you know, junior. And you got guys that are pushing you too. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You got guys behind you that, you know. Hey, is this guy's gonna? Is he gonna take that spot or is he not? Or you know, they don't. Ha they didn't have a lot of guys that they just brought in to be practice guys. Is that kind of pipeline? Is that practical in today's college football? No, no, it's not practical in today's football. First of all, you don't have freshman ball anymore. You don't have that opportunity to develop. Um, it's win now kind of mentality. Uh, and recruiting now is different because you got kids that will go anywhere. Hey, you got a chance to start this year. Oh, okay, I'll go there. Um, you know, not knowing what's going to happen in the future, but you know that kid might, that coach might be there one year, then he's gone next year. Right. And they also recruit for, um, they recruit for what kind of offense they run or what kind of defense they run. Not necessarily just pick up this guy that I think is a good athlete and put him in these positions. Because mm. there's not really that time to develop. So they're trying to find, okay, this guy's a great athlete. I can put him here and he can work well for me. Uh, but it's all about the win right now, too. So some, some teams might be able to recruit over you. And, and that's, that's the hard situation for today because there is no time for development. And now when they leave from college going to pros... The pros are now trying to figure out how do we develop these guys? Because, hey, I've had guys that I've had come in to train that hasn't been in a three-point stance in four years. Wow. They're doing everything from up stance, and yet, you know, you go to the pros, you got to be in a three-point stance sooner or later, or he's not big enough to play tackle, but he's athletic enough to play guard. So now they're going to move him inside, so he's got to put his hand back on the ground now, and he hasn't done it in four years. Why Why is offensive um, – this is a, a tangent, but – you hear from pro coaches that offensive line development is really difficult. Um, is it just because there's so much spread? Is it because of the stuff that you're talking about where kids just don't, they don't learn the basics? Like what, what are you seeing? Well, and, and even if you run so many different offenses, you think about a spread offense and then you say, is it a regular spread or is it a spread with magic splits or is it an attack spread or are you going base under? Do you run any pro set? Do you run, um, first of all, do you run a drop step technique? Or do you do a horse ride technique? Yeah, or do you do? Way over my and head. so that's where you start talking about, you know, so like if you're trying to train kids, you're going, well, it depends on where your coach learned what they learned. And then they implement it. Oh, well, we use magic splits. So you'll see a guy that's set up in one, one thing quarterback changes it well really the coach changes it from the sideline then you see him scoot out further 
he's setting up the next play, but he's just called magic splits because I want to get this tackle to move out further. So I really don't have to block him. I sort of wall him off, yeah. and that's not blocking. But it is. It works in the college game because this kid's been told, stay in the B-gap, stay in the B-gap, stay in the B-gap. That guy moves out, makes the B-gap almost where the C-gap is. He still does it because that's what he's been taught. Mm. And so there's so many different techniques and so many different things. But then when you come down to the pro game, there's more smash mouth things. There's there's the spread offense is a little bit different because you have the highest level athlete on the field. Uh, you know, it's hard to run the option. You know, you can get away with it once or twice, but the third time somebody's going to plant your quarterback. You know, so that kind of stuff. So kids, so kids don't know the basics. The they, basic fundamentals. Basic physical football. Yeah, and the thing of it is, is that there's five or six different ways to teach basic offensive line physical football, just by steps, fundamentals. Um, you know, there's different things you can say, well, we use our hands, we use our head, or do we use our shoulder pad, or do we use our flipper? Those are all different ways. Mm-hmm. And what I'd like to do is get to a point to where you start at the bases, and then you give the options as they get older to understand that there are four different ways to block the same play. Mm-hmm. And once you get them educated to that point, when they go off to college, it doesn't matter because they know all four. So is it fair to say that kids are learning schemes rather than fundamentals yes most definitely most definitely Hmm. it's more scheme oriented and if you ever look at the game and see a whole team look at the sideline it's all scheme you know hey they they know which guys the matchup that they're trying to get and the coach is calling it from the sideline what's interesting is nebraska believed in we're going to run this we're going to run it the way it is and you have to stop it and if you're set up to stop it we're going to run it anyway yeah Basically, well, right. And we had little nuances of it to where, let's say... If but you, rather than looking for a defensive weakness... No, yeah. we Well, and even you did, you find a defensive weakness and you exploit it with your playbook. And But your playbook looks the same. So we have the same play out of like, you know, three different formations. And the reason we have the three different formations is, let's say, one, the fullback goes through first and it looks like, hey, it's a dive. But it's not. Because the next time we want the fullback to go through and block this guy so the quarterback can sneak underneath. And then the next time we'll go and have the fullback do that, but then he'll go to the flat and we throw a flat pass. So everything looks the same, but they're all little nuances off of it. Right. And so that's, and then I don't have to teach my offensive linemen eight different ways of doing stuff because they just know by the play call one's a trap, one's a give, and one's an option. Nebraska football is on a tough is in a tough stretch these last 15 18 years. One of the one of the issues is has been offensive line play. Yeah. What do you think is missing? Um I think some of it comes back to recruiting styles um and what your offense identity is. You have to figure out what your identity is before you can get quality linemen to come in and play for you. What is, what, is our, what is our identity? You know, we used to be smash-mouth football, and you knew it was smash-mouth football. Uh, then we went to a spread offense in the sorts, but not necessarily a true spread offense. We still ran the option quite a bit just from the spread formation. So my question is, what kind of offense are we? We have to get linemen that fit our mold, but... The question is, we have to make a decision on what we're going to be. We're either going to be a running offense or we're going to be a spread offense. It's hard to be both and be a hybrid and then find the right guys to fit it. 
you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be a you know three yards in cloud of dust kind of team, you got to recruit those bigger guys that can get that done. If you are going to be a uh, pass oriented team, then you don't need to have the biggest lineman in the world. You can have those guys that are very athletic. And I think we got spoiled to that point to where we could take guys that are playing eight man, nine man football and have time to develop them to where they became very good offensive linemen down the road. Um, we have to find those kids that, you know, have already transitioned, that understand I'm an offensive lineman and this is what I have to do and figure out that scheme, you know, and I think that'll make a big difference. Sounds like one of the things that you're saying is 25 years ago, Nebraska did what they did something pretty unique and they did it really well with tremendous continuity and stability and they knew exactly who they were. And now it's just they're kind of like everybody else. They're trying to find what's next. They're not defining what they are. Um, you go to Iowa, you know what to expect. And, you know, not saying they're going to win championships or everything else, but you know what the, you know you're going to get tough-nosed football from day one. They're going to run the ball down your throat. They're not, you know, they're not happy. To, you know, they got to pass the ball all the time. They know when it gets cold, they got to run the ball. So you got to figure out what your identity is and then understand to convey that to those kids and give them that purpose. Uh, some of it is recruiting outside of the state. Some of it's recruiting inside the state. So your blue chippers that's inside the state, make sure you keep them at home. But you got to find a couple other blue chippers from somewhere else to bring them in to help solidify that line. They need a few Will Shields. What was your favorite part of the old Osborne offense? Um... You know, I, I liked a lot of it. I liked the option piece. I wish we could have learned more pass stuff uh, just because it would have helped me on the next level. I mean, I picked it up fairly fast, but there's just so many things we didn't know. Um, but the run game was awesome. You love it. Those uh, little inside traps. The little inside traps and things like that. And Because uh, one was a trap and then the other one was an option. And then the other one, like I said, was really he's a lead blocker to give him more time to get to the edge. Uh, but they all look the same. Um, those things is what's is what you liked about the little nuances, the little pieces that, the little wrinkles that are put in the offenses, and that's what you like. You were a trap guy. I mean, you you did a lot of things well, but you like those little traps. Right? I like to I like to run. I like to. So you like to, the counter. I like sweep. the counter sweep. I love to get out and edge and hit small people. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I like. Did you like the fumble ruski? Nineteen ninety. I like the fumble. That was Colorado. the funniest thing ever because we we practiced it. We practiced it and. He calls it, my eyes get super big. And you didn't know it was coming. No, we just, you know, like, hey, is he going to call it? You know, we're up by this point. So are we, is he going to call it? You know, he's like, yeah, he'll never call it. So then he calls it and he goes and he hikes the ball. And it really was to pick it up, spin and go. But when he put it down, it kicked it by accident and it bounced down the field. So I'm chasing the ball <laughs> down the field, trying to pick it up. And so then when I finally get it, I'm like 10 yards down the field, and then Renfro sees me, jumps on my back for 15, and then they go down. But it was one of those things of like, oh, my God, crap, where's the ball? Here we go, pick it up. And then you finally get it. Um, but, you know, it was one of those things that you go, wow, he actually called it. I mean, we practiced it over and over and over again and pulled it out, ran it, you know, had fun with it, and you know, something that you'll remember the rest of your life. I bet you I bet you still get questions about that, don't you, from uh, Nebraska fans? Why didn't you score? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, guess what? 
Some of us aren't meant to score. <laughs> Some of us are just meant to block, and maybe that was it. This is a silly question, but did you miss running the option? Like huh? once you got to the NFL, did you miss running the option? No, no, Mm-mm. no. Uh uh-uh. uh You gotta realize my rookie year, I had Joe Montana. <laughs> As a, come on, man, I had Joe Montana. It was he no, in his, know, it's just was his a... 14, 15 years, something like that, crazy. And just watching him work was enough to go, yeah, we're in the right offense. This is cool. Um, because, you know, you're watching what he does. You're watching how he stretches the field. He watches how he does these different things. And you're going, man, this is like the guy that's got five, six Super Bowl rings. He's got it down. He knows what he's doing. And I'm learning from him and watching what he's doing. Uh, at that point, you're just trying to keep your head above water and not really worried about, oh, we're not running the option anymore. Yeah. We're not doing that. It's more or less like, can I survive? Did you uh, – okay, so, so a couple quick questions about you coming into the league. So Alex Gibbs, yes. the Chiefs offensive line coach, when they picked you in the third round, he was I think he he had a quote where he was upset. Yes. He expressed frustration that they had hired or that they had drafted a Nebraska guy yes. who didn't know how to pass protect. Exactly. Tom Osborne got that quote and was upset and called Carl Peterson, his old friend, who was mm-hmm. the GM. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, kind of went off on Carl Peterson hmm. the, about you know that Alex Gibbs had said this. Were you yeah. were you aware? I mean, sh- surely you were aware of the reputation that Nebraska offensive linemen. Oh yeah, didn't pass. Oh the time. yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I was I was aware of that, but I wasn't aware that Coach Osborne had called him back. <laughs> um, but I was aware of what Alex said. It was in the paper, you know. I don't know why we drafted this guy. He's from Nebraska. They don't pass protect well. Um, but, you know, as you got to got to know Alex, you understood it because he's a guy that's no frills. He'll tell you exactly what he feels. He goes, I didn't want you here. I don't know why they drafted you in the first place because I, you went to Nebraska. You don't look like you can move. I don't know what you can do, that kind of thing. And so he was straight up honest with me, you know, and, and that's what you can expect. I said, but they drafted me and they gave me an opportunity, so I can't look a gift horse in the mouth and go, well, why don't you trade me? Or why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? Um, but then after the first two minicamps, the first minicamp, I stunk it up. I, I was exactly what he wanted me to be. I was that kid really? that couldn't pass, pass protect and didn't understand, you know, because, you know, we didn't do traditional pass protection. Everything was off play action. Everything was this, which helped me also going to that East Coast offense or West Coast offense, because we use a lot of tight sets, up kicks, everything else, which is almost similar to play action. So mm-hmm. there's a whole scenario, horse, hound, fox, those are all the three play actions that they use. That's what we use for our protection. If we use jet protection, that is another up, ta- up and attack type protection. So we really never had a soft setting protection. So it worked well for me to be at Nebraska. Okay, you got you got to dumb this down for me a little bit. So Nebraska yeah. had three protections. No, we actually had you know basically it was uh, it was like a turn right, turn left, and then it was like fake, fake such and such uh, uh, option right pass. So he would run the option down the line, take four steps back, and then he's trying to throw the ball, trying to sell the option. So it was still like a run block for us. Right. So that was about it. So we had like basically two or three, maybe four maximum true what we call pass protections. At the end of the at the end when we had Tommy, we did try some of the shotgun stuff, but that was, you know, base. We got the four big guys and a mic backer. 
you know, that kind of stuff. And you really didn't work on it a lot because we didn't use it a lot. We were more or less underneath, center, and that kind of stuff. So, But that did help me out with some of the play-action stuff because I was so aggressive that it still looked like run. Okay. And then I could settle down on the guy. There weren't a lot of... Straight uh, kicks. Straight kicks. I had to learn straight kicks. Straight kick means what? Well, it's really... um, Straight pass protection. Okay. So where Where they knew it's third and long, they know it's pass protection, which is different. You know, in college, third and long, we were still thinking about option. Right. We might maybe a screen (laughs) or maybe a trap or something to get all that get all that back. So that (laughs) there's difference than that than you know, hey, we're gonna run a drop back pass to try to get this 15 to 20 yards back. It was more or less we're gonna run a play action, we're gonna run an option, we're gonna run you know a trap up the middle or a screen. That was it. Yeah. Where in pros, you know, you set it up, you get back in shotgun. They know it's pass. You know it's pass. This guy over here is gonna bring his best pass move. You got to protect inside out. That kind of stuff. So. That's where I had to learn how to kick and use my hands and everything else, which Alex was excellent in how he taught me how to use it. Hmm. So after the third mini camp, I think I'd sold him on it, you know, that I could play a little bit uh, because he actually took some time off and told his wife, hey, uh, I found this kid. They got this kid here that I think can play, and I'm going to take a week off, and we're gonna, I'm going to work with this kid because really? I think he's going to play. And that day he sat me down and he looked at me and goes, when you first came here, I didn't want you. I didn't think you could play. And you've proven me wrong. And he goes, from this point, I'm just letting you know, the day we found out that you could play, we're looking for four or five more just like you to replace you. Never forget that. And doesn't, it set the, doesn't that suck? It set the tone. <laughs> no, it was an awesome thing. It set the tone for the rest of your career because now you don't rest. And what really helped me was my agent. My agent came and we played one-on-one basketball hmm. against each other, right? And so that's how he actually sort of became my agent in the same point. He was like, "Smart guy. hey, man, I can shoot more layups than you. Hey, I could do this. Hey, I could do that. And I'm sitting here going, yeah, right, man, you got a pot belly. You can't do this. You can't do that. And next thing you know, he's shooting layups, and then I'm trying to shoot layups, and he beats me by five or seven or whatever it is. And then I was like, yeah, I'm struggling with this pass protection thing. And he goes, why is that? He goes, you're athletic. You can do this. You can do that. He goes, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to play one-on-one. So we play one-on-one. And he goes, okay, the same way that you're covering me now in basketball, football is the same thing, but the goal is the quarterback. So your job is to keep me from the quarterback, and that's the goal. So you do the same footwork for that, but you force me to go one way instead of both. That's kind of how you thought of it, huh? Yeah. So then I was like, geez, that makes sense. You know, it's the same same angles. They already have the horseshoe piece. Keep them out of that angle. Keep them one way. Use your athletic ability to recover when you have to. But beyond that, you can use your hands. Where in basketball, you can't. So, went back to training uh, mini camp, that third mini camp, and it, it came on. And, you know, Alex honed the rest of my skills in for, and I'm what they what they call a one, one um I'm a one one arm pistola, so I shoot I shoot an inside hand. I don't shoot both, so I only shoot one at a time. Okay, you got to dumb it down for me again. What okay, when I when I set for pass protection, you see guys, and, and if you ever tell you how to set up for pass protection, everybody takes both hands and put them up. Yeah, I only I only put one in. I don't put both, and I hold one back to make the guy reach for it. So like I, a boxer. So, yeah, so so I flash it sometimes to make him reach for it. 
and then I move it and I replace it with the other one in the, in the prime spot where I want to. So I take my right hand, set it up there. He's going to reach for it. When he reaches for it, I punch him with the left. So That he, is like boxing. Yeah, it? so he taught me one-hand pistola instead of two-hand punches, which helped me because I was a balanced guy. I could, you know, really stay low. I had good balance, that kind of stuff. Um, so Alex helped me learn how to play that position at that point. You know, play in tight quarters, be able to battle someone in recovery. And because of my athletic, you know, what I had there, athletically I could recover. You had an incredible base and you had long arms. Yes. And the long arms really helped because I could I could actually touch, I could put my hands on people before they thought they, that I should. Hmm. You know, so the, the assumption was because, hey, you're inside, you're like 6'2", you know, hey, how's that? And then next thing you know, you get a hand, boom, you punch a hand on them and get them going, you get on them before they actually get started. Hmm. The only game you didn't start in your career mm-hmm. was the first one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dave Zott. Starting guard, yeah, gets hurt in the gets first hurt. game, yeah, and they throw you in, yeah, and you started week two, and you started two hundred and twenty-three games after that, yeah. Were you nervous for the first one? Joe, um, Mont- Joe Montana's calling your play. You know, when I went out there, it was more or less that adrenaline shock of, oh, I get, I'm going in. It's like play four. You're going in. I was like, cool, I get to play. You know, so then you're. You're going in. And so at that point, you just go into uh, uh, what they call protection mode of, oh, my God, whatever you do, uh, protect. Do whatever you got to do to get it done. You know, uh, you're thinking all technique went out of the door. It's like, okay, you're just fighting for your life, uh, you know, at that point. Um, but, you know, I don't know if it was nerve or anything else like that. I mean, you get nervous about specific games. There are certain games you got more nervous than others. Other games you were like, yeah, this is okay. It's not that bad. But then when you look across and you go, wow, that's Reggie White. You got a little nerves. Got a little nervous there. You know, really? not necessarily knowing he's not even over you. He's over the tackle next to you. Right. But still, he might that's inside. Reggie White. You know, that's, you know, uh, you know, all these different guys that you've been watching your whole career, that's such and such across from you that you're going to have to block. So really your indoctrinating was in training camp when you practice because at that point they had the Cheese League where they had like eight or nine teams that all went to Wisconsin yeah, yeah. and practiced, and then you could practice against each other. That's when I got indoctrinated to what am I doing. Really? Yes. Minnesota Vikings come in. They have Henry Thomas. Chris, John Randall, Chris Dolman. Chris Dolman, all these guys on their front line. And I'm looking at this like, oh, yeah, this is just like a regular day. Well, I'm used to a Dan Salamua, uh, Joe Phillips, big guys that like to run you over kind of stuff, not small, quick guys that like to make you look bad. Um, so you're sitting here and they come off the bus and they're talking trash off the bus. I mean, Hey, we got fresh meat. Who is this guy? Fresh meat. Yeah. There are lots of great stories about Shields' talent, like the Monday night football game when Ray Lewis complained that he was being double teamed on the sideline. Turned out it was just one man, number 68. But the best illustration of Shields' personality on the field is the power naps that he would take before every game. While teammates were jumping around getting crazy, Shields was snoozing to 70s and 80s R&B music. In other words, he didn't talk trash. My first training camp. Okay. And, you know, these guys show up. 
up and you're going, what in the heck am I signed up for? This is unreal. This ain't the big eight anymore. Oh, yeah. I mean, this guy here is throwing you around. The other guy is actually making you look silly. This other guy's running away from you, then coming back. And, you know, it's like he disappeared and he was in front of you a second ago. Um, they're running all these stunts and guys are hitting you from different directions. Um, and so it was one of those things you're like, wow, this is unreal. And I was like, really, I got to pick up my game and get so much better because these guys are like killing me and everything else. What was your coolest Montana experience? You know, the coolest Montana experience was probably we're at practice one day. Uh, first and foremost, we're at practice and I'm playing right guard and he's changing plays. And they had to stop the practice and basically blow whistles, blow whistles, look around, Joe. They don't know that yet. We're putting in the offense. They, they're not there yet. They don't know what you're talking about. And so that was one of those like, oh, okay. So he does know everything like the back of his hand. So then there was a practice where he goes and he rolls out and throws a left-hand pass straight up in the air. It looks like it's a, like a balada ball just sitting up there in the air. Tight end is stuck trying to release. And after he releases, the ball falls right into his hands. Boom. Like nobody's business. I was like, whoa. That weekend in the game, the exact same pass. Really? That's when you knew, wow, that's unreal. So the tight end's locked up. Yeah, he's trying to release. And the guy's grabbing him. And he just sort of lets it go. And he just sort of fades right underneath it. And the ball just drops right where he's the only one that can catch it. And then he does it in the game. And then he does a... Uh, bootleg and comes out of the backside and throws a left-handed pass cross field left-handed left-handed cross field you know those kind of things and you just sort of watch this guy and you're going he can dissect defenses so easily and you know looking off guys and doing things like that uh it was really a lot of fun watching you know being a part with him and marcus uh and marcus was one of the guys that actually taught me how to study film really, really well yeah marcus allen um he would come and sit down with us during, uh, you know, during you know during weeks we were getting ready for games. He was sitting in the meeting room with us as linemen. I'm going, okay, Marcus, yeah, what's up? What do you need? He was like, well, I was watching film in the other room, and I wanted to come in here with you guys so you guys can tell me what you can do with this guy. So we're sitting in the room, and now we're dissecting it together and going, well, this guy can't play a cutoff. This guy can't play this. This guy can do that. That guy can do this. And he was like, so on this play, I need to do this, this, and this. Yeah, if you come two steps here, he can't do that. So you can stay in the front side hole, and you can do this, you can do that. So the good thing about him, and his nickname is Cuddy, and the thing was is that his cuts were always based off of what we had sort of pre-told him. So he could reset it up beforehand and already sort of know where the holes are and really? feel it. And so it just made it that much easier for him. But it also made it easier for us because we've discussed it. We've pre-planned it out of, hey, this guy, when I do this, he's going to take off fast as he can over the top. I'm just going to keep driving them. All you got to do is set him on the third step and come back underneath. And he was one of the only guys that, you know, when I first started that would like sit in the room with us and show us how to dissect film. And that, yeah, was, I mean, it, that it, was helpful. It makes sense. I mean, if you're an O-lineman, what good is your film study if your running back's not on the same page, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, you, were there, you were there at Mile High for the Monday night game when Montana yeah. out-dueled Elway. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was that was a game to behold. That was a game to behold. Yeah, back and forth, and you know, just like I said, the magic. And he'll you know come in the huddle, and he's so calm, so surreal, you know. And that's when you know a quarterback's really good at what they do. He'll just he'll look at you. I need some more time on this one, and that's about how it is. I need some more time on this one. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna hold this a little longer, and then you're gonna go in, and I'll hit you on the second side, or this, that, and the other, and and so it's really cool because I actually got to play with Montana, um, and then a lot of the AFC quarterbacks through the years by being in the Pro, Pro Bowls, yeah. um, you know, to sit in the huddle with Peyton Manning and watch him basically play playground football while you're on the field. I mean, it's stuff you used to do in playground. Like what? Hey, uh, Tony, Tony, what did you get on that last uh, on that last dig route? Oh, I got this, this, and this. Hey, Rod- what did you get, Rodney? Oh, you got this? All right. This is what we're going to do. Uh, Rodney, do that same thing, but this time go out in the end. Uh, Tony, you know, on that dig, instead of going here, do this. And you're going to do this, this, and this. Okay, we're going to do, oh, 200 jet. That play on two. Ready? Break. And you walk out of the hole and you're going, did we really just play like we did when we were kids? I was like, that's pretty cool. I mean, that's, you know, but that's how the game is played. That's why you love it because you felt like, you know, these guys just knew it so well that they were like, oh, yeah, you just give me this protection. This guy will do this. This guy will do that. And, you know, directing traffic, just telling him what he wants. He might have handed, he might, I don't know this for certain, but he might have handed you the toughest loss of your career. Oh yeah, at Arrowhead. You know, in two thousand three, we had a we had a two thousand three where we didn't have any punts, or did we? No, you're the you're number one seed. Yeah, number one seed. You're the highest scoring, out, highest scoring offense in the NFL. And we dueled it out, and the only, there, there were no punts in that. There game. were no punts in that game. Yeah, but we had a fumble. We had a fumble in that game, and we had a mystery push off call for a touchdown. That we still this day of still trying to figure out how that happened. But yeah, that was a tough one. But even more so was our first rookie year when we played Buffalo, Buffalo in Buffalo uh, because you felt like we were loaded. We were ready to go. We had that down. Um, we we're in the championship game and we had won some tough games to get there. Uh, you started, I said 220, 223 consecutive. It was actually 231 consecutive starts in the NFL. Um, What's the closest you ever came to missing a start? Um, I had a high ankle sprain in um, one of the games, and um, I was telling Tim, you know, Grunhart, I was like, man, I don't know if I can make it. I was like, this thing is killing me. Went out pre-practice, and I was like, yeah, it still hurts so bad. I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it. And he looks at me and goes, do you know how many games you started in a row? And I go, no. He goes, I don't care if you hobble out there. He goes, you can break. He's like, it was. You could break my record and everyone else's record as you go through this. And I'm going, what are you talking about? He was like, you have like 100 and something consecutive starts or almost 200, you know, whatever it was, consecutive starts. And he was like, he was like, I don't care if you got to tape it up, do whatever you got to do. You're playing this week. Play the first play and walk out. <laughs> he was like, you got to, you got to get on the field. And that was really the only time I really ever, at one point, knew that I had a long streak going. Huh. You know. And then after that game, it was more or less. You know, there was a couple of different times I had the. Uh, a knee issue or something like that. I mean, there but, were times where you were like in a boot until yeah, Thursday or Friday. Exactly. 
Yeah, and then there was the one that was really bad was when I was playing. We were going to Houston, and I had um, you ever heard of drop leg? No. So I started to warm up, and my whole left side would go numb. I mean, it would basically it would like I couldn't move it, and so I was trying to you know working out, and so I didn't practice all week and. My chiropractor was working on it. My physical therapist was working on it. You know, my trainers were working on it. And then comes Thursday, Thursday night, and my chiropractor says, "Hey, let me reset your nervous system." I go, "You're gonna do what?" He goes, "Reset your nervous system." It's like, really? He's like, "Yeah, I'll take this laser. I'll put it over here behind this ear, and it'll help you reset your nervous system. We'll see if that works. I've tried everything else." As he put the laser back here on this side of the ear, I felt all the muscles over here relax. Really? Yeah. It was the coolest thing ever. I'm telling you, like, between my trainers and my chiropractor, there's been many games that I didn't think I was going to make, and they worked their magic to get me back up on that field. And, you know, it was like one of those things like, oh, yeah, I can feel the muscles over here just, like, relax. He was like, good. So then I start trying it, and I was like, it's, it's ready to go. Um, I want to end with the Hall of Fame thing. Okay. So in 2015, Super Bowl weekend, mm-hmm. um, you had done this three times mm-hmm. where you were a finalist for the Hall of Fame. Yeah. You had gone to Super Bowl weekend. You had stayed at the hotel. You had waited for the final vote, and you had answered your hotel door and listened to them say sorry. Yeah. Well, the thing of it is, you have to realize the first when they say sorry, they don't say sorry. You get a phone call. The fourth year comes. Fourth year comes. And you're down in Phoenix. Yes. And this time, the knock on the door is for you. Well, you know, it's funny. The first knock on the door was actually a person bringing food. <laughs> okay. And then the second knock on the door was person bringing more food because they messed up the order twice. You're like, stop bringing me but, food. But, yeah, that was the whole thing. And they called you and said, hey, we want you in your room. We want you this, that, and the other. And I knew... The other year, you heard them knock on the door. What was worse about it is the other years, you hear people that are getting in. On your floor. On your floor. Oh. And you hear guys screaming, I'm in. And you're sitting here going. And then you get that phone call. Sorry, honey, you didn't make it this year. Like, oh, okay, thanks. And then if you want, you can go across the street and sit and watch the guys that are getting in go on the stage and that kind of stuff. This is like sorority rush. And you're sitting here going like, oh, man, this sucks. But it happens to you, and he comes in, and, you know, you open the door, and he says you're in, and at this point, you've been through it a few times, so you've already sort of prepared yourself, like, cool, that's awesome. You know, it's not like year one that you would be going crazy of, like, dude, I am in, you know, I was here, and they they put me in the Hall of Fame, but after you went through one year, and you got another story, a second year, you got another story, third year, you got another story, now you start looking at it like, hmm, should I really get my hopes up for it, or should I just sort of... If it happens, that's great. Right. But if it doesn't, that's all right too. And then when you go in and you got your classmates that you go in with, and I look at guys like Mick Tinglehoff, that really you don't know he's a Husker, which you should know he's one of the greatest Huskers to ever play, which is one of those things that I'm sitting here looking through a uh, magazine, and I was like, this is Mick Tinglehoff. He played 18 years. He did what? And I was like, this is the first time I'm ever seeing him. I was like, recruiting trip 101, these are all the guys that played in the NFL that did this and did that. I mean, he played for the Purple People Eaters. He did, you know, so it's like 
it was one of those things of looking at, and, you know, he played 18 seasons. Yeah, he waited almost 40 to get it And he offer. waited 40 years. What do I have to complain about? Nothing at all. You know, so you're going, dude, I mean, it's a great moment. It's real. It's awesome. And then you look at it and they go, you know, there's a lot of great players out there. The company that makes the, the Hall of Fame jackets. Yes, Hager's. Hager's. Yes. Your mom worked for Hager. that company in yep. Lawton. She did. Yeah, she worked for Hager Slacks in Lawton. It was the weirdest thing ever because I'm looking at that tag and I'm going, yeah, my mom used to work for you guys in Lawton. You got a, you got a place in Lawton, Oklahoma, huh? And the guy was like, yeah, we used to have a factory there. And I go, you might not know this, but my mom used to work for your company. Can you believe that? No. It, it, it's one of those things of going, you know, you know, your mother put all that time in at that at, at that place, at, you know, at Hager's and that kind of stuff. And then they have, you know, then they're making a, a jacket that no one else can, can have. When did she die? Oh, it's been 15 years, almost 15 years How ago. How hard was it not to have her in Canton for that? It was hard. It was tough. It, it, it was one of those things where you knew she was with you the whole time. Um, but... Yeah, you know, that's that's one person that you would have loved to have in the stands to be able to say thank you for all she's done. Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. You can subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app or check us out at omaha.com slash podcasts. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music. If you have feedback, please email me at Dirk period Chatelaine at OWH.com. Now here's Will Shields from the start of the show talking again about his commitment to getting healthy. When was the pre-diabetes diagnosis? Oh, I had, well, I had like four different tests over the last two years. And so I've been doing this over two years, going up and down and, you know, shoot to one point that it was 12.2, which is high as I'll get out and he was oh let me add some more of this let me add some more of that and I was like so I had the mindset and which you know I like telling people the mindset is is when when a doctor gives you medicine for what you have the assumption is is that's supposed to fix what you have and that's not necessarily the truth they're just doing their job they're going hey I'm trying to give you something to help you get down to where you need to be or get where you want to be but when you really want to do it you can find a way to get down to where you need to be without taking the other medicine pieces. Not saying you should stop today or stop tomorrow, but you have to make a change in how you eat to get there. Mm. And if you don't make that change in how you eat, you'll still have the same issues that you had before. And I wanted to get to a point to where, hey, I want to save money and not have to buy medicine every day. I want to save that money and use it for something else. And some people go, well, how does that work? And I said, think about it. If you spend 600 bucks on medicine every two months, you take half of that and just buy good, clean groceries, you still save $300. Yeah, but the problem is now you have to buy all sorts of new shirts and pants because your old ones don't fit. You do. You do. <laughs> but that's a good problem to have. Because when, when, you're, when you're used to shopping at big and tall stores and you're going, man, I wish I could go and buy this off the rack or I wish I could go buy that off the rack. And then you get to that point to where you might be able to, you're going, that's not bad. Hmm. My question, my original question was inspired by the, the tales of 
pain and you know chronic pain, yeah. knees and yeah. hips and all these things that retired football players, specifically retired linemen, of course, are dealing with. You've been pretty fortunate that way, huh? Well, I had pain. That's what started me down the road. Is I had so much pain. Um, I was looking at doing stem cell. You know, I researched it first. Pain where? Oh, I had pain in my hip or in my knees and my elbows. Really, my knees were really bad to a point where I got up and went down the stairs sideways in the morning. Uh, you know, take a four or five Aleve or Tylenol or whatever it is just to try to get up through the day. That kind of thing. And then that's where I started all this research. And then I found a PMF device, which helped blood flow to start with. Uh, basically opens up all the capillaries in the body, helps get nutrients in, gets the bad stuff out, start using it. It helped the joints a little bit. And then I was like, hmm, there might be something to this learning more about all the different medicines out there, all the different things you can do to make your body better. So then I was like, hmm, this PMM, PMMF device is working pretty good. I'm feeling a little better. But what else can I do? And then this diabetes thing came up. And it was that pre- came up in the middle of this. Well, yeah, because actually I'd hurt myself beforehand trying to play basketball. And I had surgery on my knee. And I was trying to find a way to recover from it. And a lady called me from Florida and goes, hey, I got this, this fountain of youth machine that's going to be awesome for every player. And I was like, really? I was like, bring it up and show it to me. So they came up, and I tried to hear the club. It had great reviews. I tried the first time. The knee was loosening up a little bit, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is not bad. Second day, I was like, you lucky I have meetings because I want to go run on this thing and see how it works. And I actually bought one at that point, and then from that point on, I've been using it ever since. And it is one of the coolest things I've ever done. And so now it's even to the point where I can sleep on it two or three or four, three or four days a week. So it actually cradles you to sleep, wakes you up in the morning, that kind of stuff. And so I try to share that with all of my clients here, try to get them to a point to where they have to look outside of the box. Um, And some people go, well, I feel great. I'm okay. But every once in a while, I'm a little sore here. I'm a little this, I'm a little that. And I'm going, well, maybe because your blood's not showing you yet, but your body is starting to break down somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where the intellectual side of Will Shields uh, <laughs> starts to pay off, right? You, you, yeah. Uh, your reputation for being one of the smart guys. Uh, yes, exactly. You, you start doing all this, all the research. Exactly. And, and, you know, what's really cool about it. So we have here in our facility, uh, we do have. Uh, so what I did, what I did during that point where I found the PMF device, then I went and did uh, neurofeedback. For your brain so of course we have CTE that's coming up and everybody has those questions and different things I want to find out what does my brain look like and what's gonna help it become better um, so I have the chiropractor that I used over years he actually started a study and he does these different things that helps with guys that have, have PTSD and everything else to help them coordinate their brain to get it back to where it is so he does a pretest and then you do 12 sessions and then you do a test after that to see where everything is so I was like I'm gonna do that I want to try it I want to see how it works so I did that at the same time then we also do baseline concussion test here for kids we also teach reaction drills from here but it's it's not what you think reaction most people say reaction you think it's physical it's actually hand-eye coordinated so they understand that how their eyes work so they can react to things and understand what's going on around them. One of the scary things about CTE 
from your perspective, I would think, is that how do you know? I mean, you, you don't. And you don't know. And you don't know what. Years and you don't now. know what caused it. You don't know what happened. You don't know how it gets there. Um, you know, you don't know if it was from playing a sport. You don't know if your parents had it, and you just actually activate it more, fa- more fast, or faster because you played a sport that was a little more physical. Did you have a lot of quote concussions? No, no. I had one concussion in high school. That's it. 